Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, October 13th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, October 17th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Hello from Spain. <laughs> we made it. Welcome yeah. back, Emily. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to, to be joining in a different time zone entirely, but excited to still be part of the show. Awesome. I think that's great. How's it going, Jasmine? Uh, I'm doing okay. How are you, how are you guys? Doing okay. Doing mm-hmm. okay. Not too yeah. bad for a Wednesday. It's a little mm-hmm. different, but uh, we try to work it out, so it's going to be mm-hmm. a good show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is also the morning, which is not my time to shine. Right. <laughs> and um, over here. Well, it's the, it's the morning in New York. Yes, it's La Tarde in España. Wow. Well, we got, just work with us, y'all. We're going to make it work. <laughs> so on the docket for today's episode, for local news, we will be discussing a New York judge siding with healthcare workers about religious exemptions for vaccine mandates. In national news, we'll discuss a story out of Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, concerning their lead contamination water crisis. For world news, we'll be discussing how Spain is making moves to reconcile its legacy with dictatorship. And we have some good news about Biden restoring national monument protections that have been removed by Trump. Okay, so this is a story that is um, related to the ongoing pandemic um, efforts to try to curb it and um, a controversy over vaccine mandates. Um, this information is, um, I'm going to read most of this article from The Gothamist. It was written by Caroline Lewis on October the 12th. Um, the article's title is Court Side with New York Healthcare Workers Seeking Religious Exemptions reject vaccine appeal by NYC teachers. Uh, So the article begins, New York can't stop hospital and nursing home workers from seeking religious exemptions to the state's COVID-19 vaccine mandate, a federal judge ruled on Tuesday. Requiring workers to get vaccinated without allowing for such exemptions conflicts with longstanding federal protections for religious beliefs. Judge David Hurd of the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of New York wrote in his decision, the policy requiring all hospital, nursing home, and home care staff to get vaccinated against the coronavirus was initially issued under the Cuomo administration and allowed for both medical and religious exemptions. In late August, state health officials eliminated the provision allowing people to opt out based on religious beliefs a move that Governor Kathy Hochul has supported. A group of 17 healthcare workers sued Hochul and members of her administration over the policy last month. They said it violated their First Amendment rights and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations for employees' religious beliefs. They initially won a temporary restraining order preventing the state from interfering with healthcare employers' ability to grant religious exemptions. After reviewing further evidence submitted by both sides, Judge Heard issued a preliminary injunction Tuesday that effectively extended that order. An appeal is likely. 
Holchel said she will work to get the ruling reversed in an effort to promote public health. My responsibility as governor is to protect the people of this state and requiring healthcare workers to get vaccinated accomplishes that, Holchel said in a Tuesday statement. I stand behind this mandate and I will fight this decision in court to keep New Yorkers safe. Most hospital, most, most hospital and nursing home staff were already required to show proof of their first COVID-19 shots by September 27th, while, health, while home care workers had until October the 7th. Healthcare employers have already started placing those who are out of compliance on unpaid leave or firing them. SUNY Downstate Medical Center had to temporarily cancel surgeries and, over, and other services as the mandate took effect, and Northwell Health let go 1,400 employees over the state vaccine mandate. But some workers seeking religious exemptions have remained in limbo. WNYC slash The Gothamist has reached out to several hospital systems for comment on how they are handling religious exemptions in light of the last ruling. Even if the decision, even if the decision is upheld, that doesn't mean everyone seeking a religious exemption will get one. One of the implications is that there has to be an opportunity for employees to request accommodation, said Alicia Willett, president and dean of Albany Law School. It doesn't mean the employee is going to get the accommodation or that the employer is required to accommodate. New York City's vaccine mandate for Department of Education workers allows employees to seek religious exemptions. Many, but not all, of those requests have been granted. Ahead of the September 27th vaccine deadline, the city had already approved more than 500 such requests, a DOE spokesperson said at the time. Still, DOE staff who sought to block the mandate in court after it went into effect claimed the city was being, quote, unquote, openly hostile toward people's religious beliefs. A federal judge in Manhattan said at a hearing on the case Tuesday there was no evidence of such hostility and declined to grant the plaintiff's request. DOE staff who have been granted exemptions so far represent more than 20 different religions, Laura Minacucci, an attorney for the city, said at the hearing. No major religion has stated that people should not get vaccinated against COVID-19, but plaintiffs in the case challenging the state mandate say they have sincerely held religious objections to the COVID-19 vaccines that are currently available. Um, and just um, a little background, um, this is also from the Gothamist. It's a separate article that explains further what some of the um, religious exemptions are. Um, according to the complaint, the plaintiffs uh, are refusing to get vaccinated against the coronavirus because the vaccines were developed or tested using aborted fetal cell lines. These cells are replicated from aborted fetal tissue in a lab. None of the authorized or approved COVID-19 vaccines contain aborted fetal tissue nor has, this, has their production involved recently aborted fetuses. The production of the J&J vaccine relied on fetal cell lines that came from a fetus aborted in 1985. Pfizer and Moderna used fetal cell lines early in their testing pro process. 
Um, and I'm going to be on our social media putting links up of um, that explain in great detail and in my opinion, in a way that's very clear um, how what fetal cell lines are. So these are not like tissue from abortions or anything. It's um, in the process of creating vaccines and seeing how cells behave. Um, there were issues with, say, like using animal cells that would, you know, have animal viruses in them. Or um, I think people are aware of the HeLa cells, the Henrietta Lacks cancer cells that, you know, were taken without her permission and like reproduce on their own rapidly. But those are cancerous cells. Um, so fetal cell lines are like um, basically photocopying like cells from aborted tissue from many decades ago, like from the seventies or the eighties. So there's no like tissue or anything. It's literally just cells that they're replicating in a laboratory environment to um, be able to run tests and things like that, as opposed to say like killing a lot of animals and then using like, you know, an animal cell or something like that. Um, but I will definitely put those links up so people can um, read more on their own. Thank you for that recap. That was a lot of information. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. I didn't know a bunch of those things. I think the, di- the distinction that um, is being made between being allowed to request a religious exemption and then being automatically granted one, I think is really interesting and important. Yeah, I think a lot of times we don't really understand what that means, that terminology. And a lot of people, you know, joke about it and don't really understand how in-depth the research can be behind it. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to this debate in every atmosphere because you never really know. <laughs> like, do we really know <laughs> what's really in these things? I'm being, I'm joking right now, but, you know, people have many reasons that they have. And it's just important to know that it's not a joke. You know, some people take the research on these things seriously and they should be, I think people should be allowed to make the choices they need to, but I also understand the need for public health to be safe. So it's a a difficult conversation sometimes. Um, Well, to Emily's point, I wonder what um, will happen then if it's like, yes, you can request the exemption, but no, we are not going to grant it. Like, I think that would then Mm -hmm. just become, it would be the same thing because I think a lot of people are conflating that like, this is my belief. Therefore mm-hmm. you are required to accommodate me mm-hmm. when, you know, the law does say like a reasonable accommodation. So you could probably make an argument that, you know, given the nature of your job and what you're required to do, maybe it is no longer reasonable for your employer to accommodate that request. And you had have to find another mm-hmm form of employment Um, and I want to say shout out to my friend Laura because it came up like months ago um, that she mentioned this to me like that there are people who are spreading misinformation and that they're saying that there's like they're basically implying that there's recently aborted like fetal tissue in the vaccine and I think um, as my grandmother likes to say, a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing because there's people that will take like a piece of information, not fully understand it, or maybe they do, but like they'll deliberately misrepresent it 
so that people like will attach like these super like they'll get very high strung and very angry about something that they don't fully understand and just sort of latch onto it and not let go because I don't think I just I find it hard to believe that a lot of the people that are using this now I feel like there's definitely probably people who do sincerely feel this way and I also feel like there's probably people who see it as like an opportunity or like a loophole to be like, well, if I say it's for this reason, then there's nothing they can do. So they have to let me not get it. Even if like, they don't really believe um, that there's this tissue in there or they don't really understand like how the um, cells were used like in the early testing phases. I think that's a very good point. And I like that you brought up the actual research because the spread of, you know, I remember when the vaccine first came out and everybody, there was so much chatter about, you know, how we were all going to turn into zombies and all of this just dumb shit um, that really um, just dissuaded a lot of people from um, doing the research themselves. And I think that's a really important point that you're saying, because we need to um, be accountable and hold people accountable for spreading lies and spreading misinformation. It's already hard enough for us to find stuff but it's there if you if you want to look for it so yeah and the two articles that um i'm going to post um one is from reuters and the title is fact check johnson and johnson's covid19 vaccine does not contain aborted fetal cells so that's a reuters fact check and then news and views why were fetal cells used to make certain vaccines so this is from 4 years ago and it's from the children's hospital of philadelphia um so both of those go in extreme like detail but in a way that's very readable and easy to understand for a layperson which i think is very important um and also just <laughs> there's so many different like things that <laughs> the production of them may have involved something. I don't know. It's like, I just, with this issue, I always get a little bit like, I wonder how committed some of these same people are to like supporting fully formed born children and supporting people that have kids or like people who are alive right now that are being exploited and abused so that things can be produced for their benefit. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to this, it's like there's this extreme like hard line insisting that um, like there's like a child in the vaccine or something when we're talking about cells that have been made in a lab from something from before the three of us were born. Um, so that's it. That's it for uh, my story. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Definitely follow up on our social media for more information on that. We're going to hop into our first music break of the day. This is a jazz track called Banished and it's by Tamil Rojan. We'll be right back.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. All right, welcome back, everybody. And we will hop right into our national news segment. So for this story, um, I reviewed two articles. One was on The Guardian. The title of that article is Michigan Tells Majority Black City Not to Drink Tap Water Amid Lead Crisis. And the other one was from TheRoot.com by Terrell Germain. And Terrell Germain Star. And the title of that article was Majority Black Michigan City Has Water Problem That Rivals Flint Water Crisis. Residents of a majority of, sorry, let me start over. Residents of a majority black city in Michigan have been advised by the state not to use tap water for drinking, bathing, or cooking out of an abundance of caution owning to lead contamination. For at least three years, residents of Benton Harbor, Michigan have been suffering from lead contaminated water with what experts describe as insufficient intervention from state and local officials. This month, the state promised to expand free water distribution in the city and reaffirmed its commitment to comply with federal lead regulations. Activists who say Benton Harbor's poor water quality is a sign of environmental injustice and have been calling on the state to take action for years say that these steps and these are steps in the right direction, but more remains to be done. In 2018, Benton Harbor was found to have lead contamination of 22 parts per billion in its tap water, far higher than a federal action level of 15 parts per billion and higher, even than nearby Flint at the height of its water crisis. No level of lead exposure is considered safe. The federal action level is a national standard set by the Environmental Protection Agency to determine which water systems must take action to lower its lead levels. Local activists welcomed these steps after three years of questioning whether the city's water was safe and organizing bottled water drives for the community themselves. Reverend Edward Pickney, head of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, said a this was a significant step in the right direction. But Pickney said far more was needed to address the crisis in full and called for Governor Gretchen Whitmer to declare a state of emergency, both as means to accelerate the timeline to replace the city's water lines and to make clear to those residents unaware of the emergency that the water was unsafe to use. The Natural Resources Defense Council, along with Pickney's group and several other organizations, filed an emergency appeal to the EPA on September 9th, demanding federal action. In an October 5th response, the EPA told the petitioners that it was now working with the state, county, and city to ensure there is prompt action to address the community's public health needs. The federal involvement has triggered more assertive response from the state, according to Sydney Ropper, Michigan senior policy advocate for the NRDC. Following the petition in September, the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy said it would work with other agencies at the state, county and municipal level to bring water filters to every home in Benton Harbor and to provide bottled water to the residents, measures that were previously spearheaded by Pickney's group and other volunteers. Whitmer, meanwhile, signed a budget allotting $10 million to replace the lead lines in the city. But the real challenge that remains is replacing these 
um, lead lines and doing it soon. Under the proposal, the pipes will be removed over the course of five years, but it's unclear how the project will be funded. Joe Biden's infrastructure bill that passed the 45, uh, that will put $45 billion in towards replacing the nation's aging lead lines, but are currently stuck in legislative impasse on Capitol Hill. So I know we, like a week ago, we talked about um, the different financial issues we was having with the um, with the government, and I didn't really get a chance to talk about the infrastructure bill, but there are many sto stories like this in cities across the nation that have not been restored. P main places that are probably housing like older communities of people who bought their houses a long time ago and there's been no real infrastructure done. But the, the fact that this city has been battling this already for three years and it'll take five more years to really make an impact to save them is a real injustice in this city. Wow. And just um, if you're curious, the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, their website is bhcwc.org. Um, and they have a lot of information that gives them background on their mission, what they're trying to do, how to contact them, etc. That's a pretty wild story. I think at this point, everyone... Uh, majority of people know about the Flint water crisis. Um, and that, that was certainly a huge story. The fact that this has been going on for, and that was, I, I mean, I don't know how long that took to make national news, but it certainly wasn't three years. Um, but this is crazy. Yeah. That they've been dealing with this for so long and you can, I can imagine that they would feel like they're being gaslit maybe where like no one's doing anything. And then everyone's like, here's like doing water bottled water drives, like questioning whether, their waters is clean enough to drink or not. Um, sounds very stressful, a very stressful um, condition to live under for that long. And let me tell you, this is not just, you know, Michigan, as I was saying before, like this is many, um, you know, neighborhoods of people of color where their city has no interest in investing or fixing these communities because they really don't care much about the residents. And, you know, the fact that this city has been going this long and still haven't really seen any major uh, movement, it's just, you know, it's unfair. What do you do? Uproot your entire life because the water's not clear for you amidst a global pandemic and you like I, it's just overwhelming. It is. And this is also um, I think when I first got on the show, one of the first stories we talked about was about lead poisoning that was happening mm -hmm. in the city, either in New York City or in New York State, because these things, you know, it is like a form of environmental racism, like where you see um, areas where there's a heavy concentration of black and other um, non-white communities. Um, and within white communities, like the ones that are poor, these types of conditions are allowed to exist for years and years. And like the article mentioned, there's no safe amount of lead to ingest and lead is something that has serious health effects. Like um, the World Health Organization says lead is a cumulative toxicant that affects multiple body systems. Lead in the body is distributed to the brain, liver, kidney, and bones. It's stored in the teeth and bones where it accumulates over time. Um, and there's like children who are exposed to lead um, can it can attack their brain central nervous system it can cause coma convulsions and death children who survive severe lead poisoning may be left with intellectual disability and behavioral disorders 
Um, so even if it doesn't lead to something like that, um, lower levels of exposure of lead over time might not cause obvious symptoms, but it is known to produce a spectrum of injury across multiple body systems. Um, and again, that's from the World Health Organization. So when you think about the implications of this, that means you have communities that not only are they poor and dealing with racism, but then they're going to have higher levels of certain like pre-existing health conditions or intellectual disabilities and things like that. Like it's harder for you to get a job, to be treated fairly, to not be targeted by the police, like when you're dealing with those types of mental and physical issues on top of that. So it's like issue on top of issue on top of issue, and there's really no excuse for it not to be fixed by now. Yeah, this is a pure example of systemic racism um, that really affects large communities and populations that people don't care about, don't talk about. You know, Benton is one small city. Um, it is a majority black city, but you notice that when you hear these stories, it's always happening in um, cities with populations of large communities of color. And they go, you know, people go on and on and on, you know, to make differences and make hold people accountable. But, you know, how much bottled water can you really ship? You know, we hear stories about people inequity all over the world. And the fact this could be any of our families living in, you know, the United States. You don't have to um, be in an extreme situation to be in an extreme situation. So um, definitely just, you know, pay attention to these um, uh, to this organization that's been been working in this movement for a while. And we just all need to be more aware of health disparities. Um, that within our communities, which is a great um, <laughs> segue into me just mentioning the the health disparities um, symposium that I'll be a part of coming up at NYU. Uh, this will be a really just great opportunity for people to come together and talk a little bit about how academic partnerships can help us learn and address environmental injustice. So the people at this panel are people who do this work every day. And um, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks at NYU Langome. It's going to be a great opportunity. It is free to register for it. Um, so if you're interested, you can check it out. It is the 2021 NYU Health Disparities Symposium. And um, it's going to be a great opportunity to have more conversations about stories like this and just what we can do um, as activists and people with platforms to talk about these issues and bring them to the surface level. So what was the date again? Um, so the, the event that I will be, the part of the symposium that I will be hosting is going to be on Wednesday, October 20th from 1.30 to 3.30, but the date for the event will be that entire week. Uh, there's multiple events and you can check it out on the NYU, um, Lancome website for more information. Great. Yeah. Because these things are, I think a lot of times, unfortunately with climate change and other issues, people talk about, um, like, oh, it's happening in all these other places, but it's coming to the U.S. soon. And it's like, there's people that are already living with the effects of climate change, of like breakdown of infrastructure, water scarcity, not having clean water in the United States. Like it's not, it's something that's happening globally and it's definitely happening here and has been for generations. Um, and there's already, you know, people trying to patent water or make it more difficult to access water. Um, so, yeah, it's scary times ahead if we're not able to get our act together, like as a as a unit. Absolutely. This could happen to anybody at any time. So definitely keep out for more stories like this. And I will definitely post the information for the symposium up on our social media.
All right, we're going to go ahead and take a music break before we hop into our world news story. The next song is a new one. It's called Coming Back, and it features uh, SZA and James Blake. We'll be right back. Cause it hurts like the end of the world And like the trail, like the trail Of the soul I've never thought of before So I'm coming back, coming back Tail between my legs Forget what I said, what I said, what I said, what I said There's a mile between my heart and my head So I take it all, take it all, take it all Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
And now we will hop over to Spain for our international news segment. <laughs> Go for yes. it. Per- playing foreign correspondent. But I, uh, yeah, no, I picked a story from Spain. Um, it's uh, not, it's a great story. It's really interesting. And um, I really enjoyed learning about it as well. Um, not that it's a happy thing, but um, Jasmine, you can cut all of that if you want. I'm so sorry. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, this story comes from an October 9th article in The Guardian by Sam Jones titled Old Wounds Are Exposed as Spain Finally Brings Up the Bodies of Franco's Victims. In 1940, thousands of the dictator's opponents were summarily shot and thrown into mass graves. Now these are being opened. The article explains, quote, between the 16th of March and the 3rd of May, 1940, 26 Republican soldiers, workers, communists, and trade unionists were summarily tried and shot dead in the central Spanish city of Guadalajara. Their bodies were tossed into a four-meter-deep pit in the corner of the local cemetery reserved for suicides, the unbaptized, the unconfessed, and the irredeemably wicked. The area was sealed off during the Franco dictatorship, leaving the men's relatives to pay their respects by throwing bunches of flowers over the wall. Today, however, the bodies of mass grave number mass grave number four of Guadalajara's municipal cemetery are being brought up for a decent reburial, and are emerging in a con- into a country still bitterly divided over how to deal with the toxic legacy of the civil war and the four-decade dictatorship that followed. Uh, this week, Congress will debate the socialist-led government's Democratic Memory Bill, which builds on landmark legislation from 2007 and which is intended to settle Spanish democracy's debt to its past. Its 65 articles include a census and a national DNA bank to help locate and identify the remains of the tens of thousands of people who still lie in unmarked graves, a ban on groups that glorify the Franco regime, and a redefinition of the Valley of the Fallen, the hulking mausoleum outside Madrid where the dictator lay for 44 years until his exhumation in 2019. However, quote, Spain's Conservative People's Party, or PP, the descendant of a political alliance founded by former Francoist ministers, has long opposed efforts to probe the past, arguing that the pact of forgetting that enabled Spain's return to democracy ought to be respected. Um, And a 2019 article in The Guardian, also by Sam Jones, explains that Spain, quote, in its headlong rush towards democracy, chose not to remember. Both the 1977 law granting amnesty to those involved in crimes during the civil war and dictatorship and the pact of forgetting were intended to help the country move beyond Franco as quickly as possible. The dead, including Franco and the 100,000 people still buried in unmarked pits around the country, were left where they were in the belief that sealed graves would ensure sealed lips. But Spain has more mass graves than any country except Cambodia. And there is an odd irony that a nation that frets so much and usually so unnecessarily about how it is viewed abroad should have continued to exalt one dead man while leaving so many others to rot in anonymity. And then back to the current article, quote, the Valley of the Fallen with its 150 meter cross uh, has long acted as a symbol for those who rue the end of Francoism and its creed of national Catholicism. It is precisely because of that, says Martinez, uh, that the site must be turned into a place of solemn remembrance where visitors can come to learn about everything the mausoleum was intended to celebrate and symbolize. That's the best antidote to the totalitarian outbreaks that are happening at the moment. It's like visiting a Nazi extermination camp. 
When you leave, you do so with the firm determination that these things should never happen again. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I explained who Martinez is. And oh, one second, I'm so sorry. Martinez is a historian who was appointed Secretary of State for Democratic Memory uh, last year. All righty. So, um, uh, also the mass grave quote is crammed with the remains of some 33, sorry, 33,800 people from both the nationalist and Republican sides whose bones were dug up from cemeteries across Spain and reburied in the monument in a feigned attempt at reconciliation. Uh, and Emilio Silva, uh, is quote, the president of the association of the recovery of historical memory or ARMH, a human rights group that has spent two decades exhuming mass graves and campaigning for justice for Franco's victims and quote for Silva and many of his colleagues in the ARMH, which is funding and coordinating the excavations in Guadalajara, the draft law doesn't go far enough when it comes to justice and reparations. They're drowning up they're drawing up a census of victims, but there's no list of executioners, he says. And nowhere in the draft law's pages is there a mention of the Catholic Church, which was one of the biggest instruments of the repression. The law glosses over things. It's designed not to bother anyone. That's a problem. A proper memory law should upset the executioners, he adds. Uh, Yeah, so that is the story. I thought it was super interesting. And it... Spain is really a fascinating place. It's it's super chill and easygoing. And then you remember like, oh, yeah, you guys had a dictator until 1975. Um, my dad remembers in college, SNL, the early years, like every weekend update, they would be like, and Franco is still alive, like um, until he passed away. Like they would do it every week. And it was a big thing internationally. And then and it was really interesting to learn that it was able to transition into this chill, like, you know, easygoing, um, you know, touristy, fun, fun space because a, like a national decision was made to sort of just like not talk about what had just happened. Um, and learning about the number of mass graves was really interesting. I didn't know that it was that much, the second most in the world. Yeah, it's it's really it's horrible and it's unfortunately a part of a there's a lot of places you can go where I mean we're dealing with that now where people want to they claim that it's about moving on so that things can be better and you can be unified but it's really about erasing the truth mm-hmm. and it makes it easier for those things to happen again because people don't have and they're not being educated from a young age. I mean, I'm not speaking for Spain. I, I've been to Spain, but I didn't grow up there. I don't know what they teach in the schools. Mm-hmm. But um, I know here, like, we're dealing with that with people, like, not wanting to talk about slavery. People in Canada that, you know, don't know what they should know about Indigenous people, children being found in mass graves. Like, it's, it's a very disturbing um, mentality of, like, let's just forgive and forget that all these people, you know, were massacred. You know, it's, it's really insulting to their memory to even suggest something like that. So I hope that um, this is a step in the right direction and it keeps going. Yeah. I think as difficult as it is for us to have conversations that talk about the dark past, 
um, that's the only really way for us to move forward because you have to remember like these wombs of generations of people don't just go away because you give a holiday or you you know do something to acknowledge it there is lots of healing that needs to be done and you know people need to be held accountable um and we need to just have a moment for that i think a lot of times we try to just focus on well you know how things have changed and what we can do now and the reality is it may not be as direct but it you know there are still elements of um those time periods that are with us now and having a moment to look back to look forward and really uh, taking in how these atrocities have affected people's lives and how they will it's the only way that anybody can really be healed by anything yeah and if you're if you're in new york city um when i was in college we had to read a play a play written by this author his name was federico garcia lorca and he was executed by um, at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he was a playwright. He was also a poet. Um, he was also gay. So I'm not sure. I'm sure it was a combination of those things. And also his political activity uh, was the reason why he was uh, murdered. His uh, remains have never been found. But if you're in New York, there's a very beautiful mur- mural in- dedicated to him. It's at 126 Lafayette Street. Um, and I always like to look up at it whenever I'm in that part of the city. So um, if you're in Manhattan or you find yourself in Manhattan, keep your eyes peeled for it. Um, it's at least, you know, one piece of the city here that um, honors one victim's memory. Uh, and he was someone who taught and lived in New York for a time. Um, he has a book of poems called A Poet in New York that was published after his killing. Thank you, Justin. I didn't know about that. Um, and I also know that um, Pan's Labyrinth, actually, um, it's one of my favorite movies, and, and it's based in this time period um, with the, um, not like the, Franco's not in it, but a stand-in for him is, and that sort of um, fascist movement, specifically in Spain, taking over um, is an important part of that film. Have you guys seen it? I've seen it. It was really, really, um, it's an incredible film, but it's very heavy. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely recommend it. I think it gives a good um, vibe for what that world was like at that time as someone who was not there and is also new to Spanish culture. um, I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much for that story and that plug. And Jasmine, I saw the plug about the poet. Definitely want to check, check that out. Um, And then finally, Emily, you got the good news for us today as well. I do. More of me. So um, the good news uh, is a story. The good news for this week is a story that comes from an October 8th NBC News article by Darturnoro Clark and Lauren Egan titled Biden Restores National Monuments Protections Stripped Away by Trump. Restrictions on Bears Ears, Grand Staircase Escalante, and Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monuments has been changed to allow, had been changed to allow development. So it's no longer allowing development. Uh, Quote, President Joe Biden on Friday restored environmental protections to major national monuments in Utah and New England that had been stripped by the Trump administration. Speaking at an outdoor ceremony at the White House, 
Biden said that protecting Bears Ears, Grand Staircase, and Escalante, and Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monuments should not become a pendulum that, sw- that swings back and forth depending on who is in public office. Uh, quote, while in office, President Donald Trump gutted or lifted restrictions on all three national monuments, dramatically reducing their size and allowing development, mining, ranching, drilling, and fishing to take place on the lands. Quote, Interior Secretary Deb ha- Holland, uh, the first indigenous cabinet secretary, spoke emotionally about the importance of the lands to tribal nations. Uh, Sorry. Um, Quote, today's announcement, it's not just about national monuments. It's about this administration centering the voices of indigenous people and affirming this shared stewardship of this landscape with tribal nations, Holland said. Together, we will tell a more complete story of America. Uh, quote, in late 2017, Trump signed a directive that sharply reduced Bears Ears and Grand Sigurtes Escalante National Monuments in southern Utah by 1.23 million acres out of a total of 3.25 million acres, all of which had been, had been protected by monument status. Uh, Quote, environmentalists and Native American tribes had sued the Trump administration over the directives and have pressed Biden to restore the protections. Um, So, yay. (laughs) We're back, you know, um, where we were a few years ago, um, which is better than where we were last year, I would say, uh, on these uh, protected lands. That is a step in the right direction. (laughs) I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) yeah all right everybody uh i believe that's it for this week's episode of objection to the rule thank you so much for listening you can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org on radio free brooklyn app or on spotify listen up for more independent brooklyn media our final track of the day is another great jazz record it's called giant steps and it's by ulysses owens jr and the big band We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. See you next week. Happy spooky season. Bye.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.